our hearts have been drawn to our God this morning. In the spirit of worship, we're going to turn in our Bibles to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, and we'll look at the second half. We looked at the first half of James 2 last week, and we'll look at James 2, 14 to 26. Some say that James uh, 2, 14 to 26 is the theme of the book, and it very well could be um, a tremendous aspect of the book, a mature faith is a faith that works. Not in that it works um, like I'm glad my TV works or my car works, but in a sense it is a little bit like that. I could have also said true faith acts or true faith is in action. And so James is going to challenge us. This is Christians. Okay, we can show people that we are believers by listening to James, and this passage of Scripture is going to really challenge us to put our faith into action. There are many, and you probably know many, Christians who say, I love God, but I don't want to serve Him. They may not say, but I don't want to serve Him, but their life shows they don't want to serve Him. And given opportunity after opportunity and encouraged by others that are serving and watching people that are serving God who are worn out from serving God because there's so much ministry to do and some just say, you know what, that's not for me. Many of you are not like that, that you are looking for ways to serve. You're looking for needs. Let me just tell you this, ladies, there's always going to be a need to work in the nursery. If you see children here, there's a need. And there's kids here, so there's a need. There's always going to be a need for junior church teachers, always. And we're very glad, and if you're a parent of a four- to six-year-old, you're very glad for a junior church. But there's always going to be a need for that. There's always going to be a need to help people in our church that have struggles. There's some that can't... Um, do certain things around the house anymore that you might be able to help them with. Uh, yard work, inside, outside, snow removal. Uh, there are uh, things around the church that if you talk to the deacons or myself or John Sparkman as leaders here, we'll tell you there are things that need to be done that we just don't have time to do it all. There are people around you that have needs. You know who they are. They might be your neighbor. They might be a coworker. And if you just go to lunch with them and talk with them, say, hey, tell me the story of your life. Tell me how are things going in your life. You'll find that they have needs. And I wouldn't be surprised if you talk to people like that, expect that they will share a need that they have that you know how to meet it. Because God does that. He puts people in our lives that we have resources and they have needs and he brings us together. He does it all the time at church. He does it all the time in life. And if we are not thinking like James 2 is going to challenge us to think, we'll miss it. We'll miss being useful 
for the kingdom of God. I drive to church now, and I drove by someone who was pulling weeds in his yard. Hands and knees, pulling weeds from the grass. And I thought, that's useful. But there's a God who desires us to worship him. It may be a little more useful to spend time on eternal things. There's a time to pull weeds in your grass. And if you pull weeds in your grass, that's great. I usually spray them <laughs> or let them go. But some people want a perfect yard. Some people want a perfect job, a perfect bank account, a perfect car, a perfect house, a perfect whatever. And they'll spend an exuberant amount of time to make sure something is perfect. Well, let me challenge you as James would challenge us this morning. When God looks at our lives and all the things that we can and should be doing, we should be busy serving him and serving others. If you're not busy doing that, you may be spending a lot of your time and things that don't really matter. James chapter 2, verse 14. We didn't do a scripture reading, so we'll read part of it uh, down to verse 20. James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder or tremble. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? I'm going to use the word useless and useful. You have all, and I may have mentioned this before, have, have given or received useless gifts. So if you stop by the side of the road and find some broken down piece of furniture and you show up at my house and say, hey, Pastor John, I, I heard you needed a bookshelf. I got this. It just needs a lot of glue. Okay? So you, I'm going to say... Okay, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Thank you for thinking of me. That was very thoughtful of you, but that's not the most useful gift. We all try to give people, and some people are way better than others at gift giving. My wife is very good at gift giving, and I am not. So she knows what people like. She knows what people are into. And when it comes to gift giving, what do you think about this, Joyce? No, no, that's wrong. This is what you need to do. And whatever it is that that is what we need to give, it goes well. It's a useful gift. When you stand before Jesus Christ one day at the judgment seat, do you want to hear from him, you were useful 
or you were useless. Because if we're a Christian, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That should motivate you. Because Jesus said when he taught one of his parables, there was a servant that was useless. And he received from the master, when the master came back, after giving the servant a talent, which was a large sum of money, he didn't do anything with it, and he hid it in the ground. He didn't really know his master, didn't really want to serve the master. And the master said, you wicked, slothful servant. I fear that some of you have been saved for years, decades, and you have been part of this church, and you have been nearly, I'm not going to say completely, nearly useless. Say, well, I come every week. That's great. The pews don't need to be warmed. They're good. They don't need the indent of your body in them. They can survive without you. What are you doing to advance the kingdom of God? And I'm going to get very specific today because James gets very specific. What does he say as to illustrate this? He says there is a uselessness of words alone and then a usefulness of acting or working, showing that you're really a Christian by serving, getting busy, doing the right things. So there's a useless faith. Now, James writing as a pastor to the church that is scattered abroad. So they've got smaller churches, as we saw last week. If someone comes into your church and they obviously wealthy, obviously poor, you put them in a different category and you put them in a different place physically based on your inaccurate judgment. Now he's going to say, you have people around you that have needs. And in every culture, in every place, there are people that have a lot and there are people that don't have a lot. You know, if we had everyone in our church was wealthy, we would not need a fellowship fund. We just wasted our time. We don't need to organize that. We don't need to talk about it in our leadership meetings. We're just wasting our time. But there are always people that have needs. Let me give you a few of those people that will almost always have needs. Young families. Uh, how many of you, when you, were, when you were married, you were well off as soon as you got married? Anybody hands? How many of you had significant needs as soon as you got married financially? Put your hands up. Higher, so everybody can see. Almost all of us, when we get married, we get starter jobs and we're working to try to make ends meet. You know, if you have extra funds available and you come to church thinking, who can I help? Let me give you a category of people that almost always need help. Young couples. Young people. I'll give you another category. College students. They always have needs. They never have quite enough money, and they're working hard, and they're studying hard. They run out of time because they cannot work enough to provide for themselves, and they almost always have needs. Am I right? Yeah. Because I've been a college student before. I've been a young married couple before. A young married couple with kids before. I still have kids. I'm not quite young, even though I look young. But young people almost always have needs. Some other people that might have needs, people that have a lot or in their family, a lot of medical needs. 
insurance is good, but we think in a very prosperous, insurance-heavy society that, oh yeah, insurance is going to cover that and that and that and that, but there are limits to insurance. Insurance doesn't cover everything. We still have to pay out-of-pocket expenses. And if, when we build relationships with people and ask, how are you doing? And I don't mean that as a greeting. I mean, how are you doing financially? And be honest with me. And just you and your friend. You expect them to say, no, things are actually going well, or nah, things are really tight. When you hear things are really tight, you may want to help them, if you can, help them financially. Because here James says there is going to be people in your assembly that are poorly clothed, they lack daily food, and one of you comes up and tries to be a blessing to them and says to them something like this, go in peace. I hope God's peace is on you. Be warmed, be filled, and it might be cold outside, and they lack a thicker winter coat. And they're hungry, and they don't have a lot to eat, barely enough to, to get by, and you have plenty of food and plenty of money, and you just say to them, go in peace, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Here is someone who claims to be a Christian treating someone who else is a Christian, and their faith... I'm putting faith in quotes here because it's useless. Their faith is useless because they are failing to meet obvious needs. Now, this person who comes to a church who is poorly clothed and they look hungry, and if you ask them, did you have breakfast? And they say, hmm. And they don't want to say no, and or they don't want, yeah, 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 had a little bit. And what, what, what's a little bit? I've found that there are people that God brings into my life to try to meet their needs physically first. Kids that used to come to the parsonage, and I would always ask them, if they come at mealtime, did you eat? Yeah. Do you want some of our food? Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Your wife's a good cook. I know. I can't say that I have faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and my provider. And... Turn away from those in my presence that have a need. Now, with technology, the world's going to tell you, and when we get close to Christmas, every ministry is going to show you a picture of people starving somewhere in the world and make it your responsibility to make sure every kid in the world is fed. You are not responsible to feed every kid in the world. Let me just take that load right off of you, okay? If you get something in the mail that's from somewhere else in the country and you say, you know what, I... I'm doing good to meet the needs of my family. It's not your responsibility to feed every kid in the world. It's not your responsibility to feed every kid in Dracut either, or Lowell, or Salem, or Pelham, or Tewksbury, or wherever you live. It's not your responsibility to make sure everybody in your town has food. But it is your responsibility to make sure your family has food, that your immediate neighbors that you see a lot, that are maybe at your house or you go over there, it's okay to make sure they have food. So we have to prioritize because with technology and with videos and everything and, and mailing, the, the world's going to play on our emotions saying it's our responsibility to make sure everybody in the world is, is with, with, um, 
goes to bed full. Well, there's always going to be poor, Jesus said. And now that's not alleviating us from that. But we are supposed to help who is our neighbor, the neighbor who is closest to us. So in the story of the Good Samaritan, who was responsible to help the man lying on the, on the side of the road, bleeding and half, half killed? It was the people that walked by him. You know who wasn't responsible to help them? Everybody else that didn't walk by him. They weren't responsible because they didn't know it. Now, whoever is near us, we are responsible to help them. If you come to church on a regular basis, we're going to consider if you have a need to help you with the fellowship fund. But if you come once a year, I, I don't feel the responsibility to help you. And there are people that call me now. My number is on the answering machine here at church, so I get calls. Hey, I got, I got a really hard time, and can you help me out? Spare me a few bucks. Sorry, I can't. And I used to feel bad by saying, I'm sorry, I can't. But everybody in society that has needs is not our church's responsibility to meet everybody's needs. We are, we are limited in our resources. So what God says here, specifically with James, is saying, if there a brother or sister is poorly clothed, this is someone that you know that's a, a spiritually related to you. It's a brother or sister in Christ. So I'm going to apply that to our church. Your faith is useless. If you see obvious needs, you can meet them and you do nothing about it other than say, I'll pray for you and be at peace and be warmed and filled. I hope God provides for you. And you have the means to provide for them and you don't do anything about it. You have a useless faith. That's what James would say. Continuing, verse 18. Well, verse 17 says, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay, and he's going to re reiterate that on in verse 26. For the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead also. So that's verse 26 and 17 are uh, parallel. So what else does useless faith look like? It's obvious. So it's obvious that we have... Uh, people in our church that have needs. We have people around us that have needs. And if God has provided you with an abundance, uh, you are expected to show your faith in God by trying to meet that need. Now, there are needs. And I, as a young, if you are a young couple, a college student, someone who is a teenager, you don't have a lot of finances. So when you have, and I used to think this way, God, if you would just give me a lot of money, I could help a lot more people. But God didn't give me a lot of money when I prayed that kind of prayer. But what God did challenge me with is this. What do you have that you can use? If you're a young person, college student, young married couple, let me tell you what you do have. You have energy. How many older people say amen to that? Yes! You have so much energy as a kid, as a teenager, as a 20-something. You need to be helping people physically. I'm 40, and I'm realizing I can't help as many people physically as I used to do. But I want to. If you have energy, you can help people. You probably, if you're not married and you have energy, you probably have more time. College students, not during school, but during the summertime, you have a lot of time where you can say, you know what, who in my church needs help that I can help? And I have 
time. You know some people that are shut in, that live by themselves. You know what they want? They just want someone to listen to them. And I'm, I'm sometimes that guy. I show up yesterday, I talked to someone, and I realized this person just needs someone to listen. So I sat and I listened. That's hard to do if you're a young person, you have a lot of ideas and things, and you want to go places. It's hard to sit and listen. But that's how you can meet someone's need. They just need a friend. You know, 70, 80, 90-year-olds don't expect 20-somethings to want to be their friend. We are so segregated in our culture that you, at a church it should not be like this. We should be looking, coming to church, looking for someone who is sitting by themselves. And if you're around someone who's sitting by themselves, someone who is sitting by themselves has a need. They need a friend. No one in our church should sit by themselves. Okay, that's happened today. Next week, I'm going to see that it doesn't happen. I want to encourage you. Okay, well, encourage them to sit with me. No, take yourself out of your self-assigned seat and go sit with them. There are no assigned seats here. Okay, there's no nameplates. You didn't pay for the pew. It's not like the olden times where you got this little box that you got to sit in. You don't have to sit there. You can sit somewhere else. <gasps> Faith without works is dead. It's very practical. But we have people in church that have needs, different types of needs. And there, God has put us together in a body to meet each other's needs. Sometimes it's financial. Sometimes it's social. You just need a friend. And sometimes you just need help. You need someone to do something. If you're older and you're struggling with technology, ask one of the young people to look at your phone. Ask, bring your iPad to church and say, hey, I cannot figure out this app. Is there a better app than this to help me with life? And young people, 20-somethings, they can just do it and probably show you how to do it. And now I'm relying on my kids to do this kind of thing because I am past the technology curve. We all get there. We are together as a body of Christ to meet each other's needs. So if we won't meet each other's needs, how does James compare us in verse 18? But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. We try to separate. I have faith in God. I love God, but I don't want to serve him or anyone else. We think that way. And James says, no, we can't think that way. If you think that way, here's what you're like. Verse 19. You believe that God is one. So that means your theology is right. I know how to get saved. I know how to grow as a Christian. I know all there is to be true about God. I know that God is the only God, that there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I know kind of how they function together. I know that Jesus died for me. I know that God is the creator. I know all these things about God, and that's good. But let's think of what the demons know to be true about Jesus. How, why does he bring this up? Because you know what the demons know to be true about Jesus? That he's the Son of God. They know that he was born in Bethlehem. They know he lived a perfect life. They know all of the miracles that Jesus did. They know he died a horrible death on the cross. You know what the demons also know? That he's alive. He resurrected. You know all the demons also know? That he is at God's right hand interceding for us. The demons know all of that. 
And there are some Christians that think, I have all the right facts about God. They know, the demons know every, every story of the Bible. They know it. So knowing is not the issue here because the demons know. And how do the demons relate to Jesus and God? They tremble. But here's what they don't do. They don't serve God. See, they have all of the facts about God. They know everything that happened. They know who Jesus is, what the Holy Spirit's doing, what the future is even in Revelation, but they are doing everything they can to go against serving God. And here we are sometimes as lazy Christians, seeing people with needs and not doing anything to help them other than just talking to them, we won't get off our couch. We will not watch, not watch our favorite show. We cannot not get on our Instagram and Facebook account every single day religiously because someone has needs. We will not deny ourselves. And Jesus would say, you cannot be my disciple. And James would say, your faith is nearly useless. Because you remind me of the demons. The demons believe all the facts about Jesus and God, but they will not serve him. We as Christians can believe all the facts about God, and we should serve him with every fiber of our being. And if you don't want to serve him, I'm going to question your faith. Because James would question your faith. If you will not get out of your pew, if you will not get off of your couch, if you will not pick up the phone, if you will not pray, if you will not try to help someone who has a need, then you have the ability to meet that need. Your faith in God is, is useless. So useless faith should remind us of demons. And I don't know about you, but any time that I get compared to demons, I would say, no, thank you. I do not want to be compared to demons. I tell young people whenever they lie, you remind me of Satan because Satan is a liar. If I ever justified my own lying, you can tell me, Pastor, you remind me of Satan who lies. That's, his, that's, his, that's how he, he accuses people and lies. So we don't want to remind each other of demons. Demons don't serve God. They're serving Satan. They're going in opposition to what they know to be true about God. And they have all the right facts about who God is. They know all the stories better than us. And yet they do not submit to Jesus. So their faith is not really saving faith. That's the difference between saving faith and just a faith. So what are we going to do with this passage? Don't just claim to be a Christian. Practically help people by giving your time, your talent, your treasure, especially in our church, especially to people that are near you. Your claiming to be a Christian is nearly useless if your life doesn't back it up, if you don't serve. If you need to know how to serve, please talk to me or one of the deacons and we'll gladly give you a ministry to serve in because there's lots to do around here. And as God expands our church and our influence here, there's going to be a lot more to do around here. 
And if we plant a church, which we'd love to do, there's going to be a lot to do at, at that place with more to do here. You can see the work of God is never done here on earth. And Christians that are useless make those who are useful's jobs so much harder. Continuing, so we can get done here. Verse 21. There's two stories. One the Jews would have loved. One they would have said, eh, Rahab, eh, not so, not so much. She is mentioned, Rahab, in the line of Christ. She's also mentioned in the faith chapter of Hebrews 11, and she's mentioned here. So usefulness of acting faith. How useful is faith that works, faith that is in action, faith that says, I'm not going to be content to just say, be one and filled. I'm going to do something, go out of my way, do something that I wouldn't normally do, something that's uncomfortable, so that I can help someone else. That's the person who is the mature Christian. So there's usefulness of acting faith. What's it say in verse uh, 21? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith uh, was active alongside his works, and faith was completed by his works. And scripture was fulfilled. That says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Abraham's salvation testimony from Genesis 15. It's also mentioned in Romans 4, same exact phrase, quoted from the Old Testament. Abraham got saved the same way we get saved. We trust to God. How do we know Abraham was a believer in the true God? His works. And what is the work that's represented here in James? He says um, in verse 23, um, Scripture was fulfilled. It says, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. I'm sorry, I, missed, I skipped over verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Abraham knew God wasn't a God who wanted human sacrifices, so he figured this was a test. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham thought Isaac was going to be resurrected. That's unique because no one had ever been resurrected before this time. Tremendous faith that Abraham displayed. How do we know he was a faithful, full of faith man? He didn't withhold his son. He said, I believe God. God promised me this special son. My wife, Sarah, can't have any kids. She actually had a son. She's not going to have any more kids, unless miraculously. And God says, through Isaac, all of your seed and your name is going to be blessed. And you're going to be a blessing to all the nations through Isaac, through Isaac, through Isaac, not Ishmael. And then after that, God says, take up Isaac. Offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham doesn't even question God. He just, early the next morning, he gets on his donkey and a three days journey, three days to think about it, three days to change his mind. Three days, he says, this is right. I do not know how this is right, but this is what God says. No one can say to Abraham, you do not have faith in God. Why? Because he acted. We can just have works and no faith. Yes, there are people that serve all the time. They don't have faith in God. But this is not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is to go after Christians who are lazy, who are not being useful in a church, in the kingdom of God. 
They're not being, they're, they're useless. They're just words alone and doing nothing to help anyone other than talking. Well, there's a useful example of an unnatural acting to obey God. It is unnatural to take your son and offer him on a, as a sacrifice on an altar. But this is what God expected of Abraham to do. He actually was going to stop it, and he did. He didn't want a human sacrifice. He never did. But there's a useful example here of Abraham doing what is against nature in order to obey God. What is there in your life that God, you say, this would please God, but it is against nature to do? Or natural in a very prosperous society, saving for retirement, or doing something. Yes, and there are people that come here that we've had as missionaries this year that they don't really care about saving for retirement. They want to go to uh, Nicaragua. They want to go to the Philippines. They want to go to other places around the world, uh, England, and work with uh, Muslims. And you say, that's unnatural. Why aren't you trying to build your bank account here and stay close to family? Because this is what God designed our, our family to do. And I'm convinced, and the more, the closer I get to this, leaving the country and going to another country, this is exactly what God wants me to do. There's an unnatural acting to obey God. God and his priorities and obeying him is of utmost priority. Everything else is just details for someone who is useful to the kingdom of God. It is unnatural in New England to go talk to your neighbor. I get that. But I'm expecting you. God is expecting you to go talk to your neighbor and build a relationship with them. You say it's awkward. Doesn't matter. Talk to them. Make it less awkward for them, even if it's awkward for you. We need to be acting unnaturally, not weirdly, not bizarrely crazy, but building relationships with people so that we can share the gospel with them. That's an act of faith. If you have never talked to your neighbor or even had this thought, it's my responsibility to witness to my neighbor, shame on you. Because it is your responsibility to witness to your neighbors. They're closest to you. I'm not going to come witness to your neighbors. I don't have that much time. No one does. We have to be influencing the people around us and acting in faith to obey God. The next thing is Rahab, verse 25. And in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute. She's still called the prostitute in the New Testament. Telling this is she was very anti-cultural. So the first one was unnatural. The second one was anti-cultural. Rahab, living in Jericho as a Jerichoite, was to protect Jericho. She acts after her salvation. She acts in a way that is countercultural. And we are called to as Christians to act countercultural in order to serve God and serve other people. So this is what Rahab did. She took the spies from Israel. Uh, it says in verse 25, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works. That means she showed by her works that she was a believer. When she received the messengers, that they were the enemy, trying to figure out how to destroy Jericho. She received them because she received their God. And she sent them out by another way. She protected them while the rest of her city was going to be destroyed. She was spared. This is so countercultural. She would have been, if she was caught, been hanged as a traitor or whatever they would have done to her because she turned her back on her culture. 
But it isn't about her culture. Her culture was doomed to destruction anyway because that was God's plan for them to have Jericho for Israel. We're not going to go into all that. But other than she was a useful example. She did not say, guys, I'm glad you're here. I'm with you. I'll I'll pray that God finds you a hiding place in Jericho and close the door. That's not what she did. She opened a door. Guys, come in. I got got an idea. Hide under these mats. Okay? And now wait, and then I'm going to send you out uh, and protect you. And then when the messengers um, or the the spies are are safe, um, then uh, remember me. So... She truly had faith. Joshua 2 tells us her salvation story. And she is mentioned in Hebrews 11 and James 2 as a woman of faith. She was the great, great something grandmother of David. She's in the line of Christ. And you can read her name in Matthew 1. The line of the Messiah came through a prostitute. Why? Because our God's grace is amazing. The power of the cross to set people free. And when you are free, you will serve. Freedom is freedom from self to serve others. That is true Christian freedom. You are not free as a Christian to serve yourself and to do nothing for Jesus. You are free from yourself the moment of your salvation so that you are now free to have different goals, different purpose, different um, purpose in life, and different people to serve and not just yourself. So our culture says, serve yourself. Look out for yourself. Look out for number one. Uh, Okay, your family, that's fine, but make sure you take care of yourself. Don't even help your kids. Save for your own retirement and make sure that you're all set and then you can help. Well, that doesn't require too much faith. We could live as a New Testament church without insurance. I'm not going to tell us to go out uh, weirdly, and drop all of your insurance. We're just going to rely on the fellowship fund. No, we're not going to do that. We have, we have this in place, but I'm not primarily relying on insurance. I just got a house. I'm not really relying on that house because the government could take over and take my house. And if we get persecuted, I'm probably the first to get my house taken. That's okay. Because I don't live by, I don't live by uh, intellect or by. Um, Sight, I live by faith. We have to live by faith, and when we live by faith, we act because of our faith. So what do we need to do? Ask God to help you practically serve him and others in our church this week. If you say, I'll start that next week, that's great. Only think about it. You don't need to think about it. You need to think about it as much as you pray. God, God, help me to identify needy people. If you get your prayer list out or get the name of the directory of our church out and say, God, help me to identify needy people. If you're young and have energy and don't have money, help me to find someone that needs help and energy that I can provide. If you're older and you have wealth and you look and say, I can help somebody financially, who is it in our church that has needs? Ask God to help you practically serve him. When that happens, when we are functioning like this as a church, where everyone is saved and everyone is active, it's not going to be the 20% doing 80% of the work, which is typical in a church. It's going to be 90, 95% of Christians doing the work and helping the other five to get plugged in as well. 
That's how it needs to be. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that our action, our lives as Christians would not be about ourselves. Help us not to be comfortable in our laziness, in our lack of serving. Thank you for saving us from our sin. Thank you for rescuing us. And we remembered that this morning. And with our remembering, I pray that you would help us to be active. Show us ways that we can minister to people around us here in our church. Show us ways we can minister to our neighbors and help them. I pray that you would open doors of witness after we help, after we serve. I pray that we would have doors of discipleship here. We can help each other grow after we decide that we're going to serve and by faith go against what is our nature to do, what is against our culture to do. And I pray that we'd not just look about uh, for the needs of us, we look out for the needs of others. Challenge us and convict us by your Spirit to take action right away for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.